Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Funeral of a Great Myth by C.S. Lewis Part 1 There are some mistakes which humanity has made and repented so often that there is now really no excuse for making them again. One of these is the injustice which every age does to its predecessor. For example, the ignorant contempt which the humanists, even good humanists like Sir Thomas More, felt for medieval philosophy or romantics, even good romantics like Keats, felt for 18th century poetry. Each time all this reaction and resentment has to be punished and unsaid. It is a wasteful performance. It is tempting to try whether we, at least, cannot avoid it. Why should we not give our predecessors a fair and filial dismissal? Such, at all events, is the attempt I am going to make in this paper. I come to bury the great myth of the 19th and early 20th century, but also to praise it. I am going to pronounce a funeral oration. By this great myth, I mean that picture of reality which resulted during the period under consideration, not logically, but imaginatively, from some of the more striking and, so to speak, marketable theories of the real scientists. I have heard this myth called Wellsianity. The name is a good one insofar as it does justice to the share which a great imaginative writer bore in building it up. But it is not satisfactory. It suggests, as we shall see, an error about the date at which the myth became dominant. And it also suggests that the myth affected only the middle-brow mind. In fact, it is as much behind Bridges' Testament of Beauty as it is behind the work of Wells. It dominates minds as different as those of Professor Alexander and Walt Disney. It is implicit in nearly every modern article on politics, sociology, and ethics. I call it a myth because it is, as I have said, the imaginative and not the logical result of what is vaguely called modern science. Strictly speaking, there is, I confess, no such thing as modern science. There are only particular sciences, all in a stage of rapid change, and sometimes inconsistent with one another. What the myth uses is a selection from the scientific theories, a selection made at first, and modified afterwards, in obedience to imaginative and emotional needs. It is the work of the folk imagination, moved by its natural appetite for an impressive unity. It therefore treats its data with great freedom, selecting, slurring, expurgating, and adding at will. The central idea of the myth is what its believers would call evolution, or development, or emergence, just as the central idea in the myth of Adonis is death and rebirth. I do not mean that the doctrine of evolution as held by practicing biologists is a myth. It may be shown by later biologists to be a less satisfactory hypothesis than was hoped 50 years ago. But that does not amount to being a myth. It is a genuine scientific hypothesis. But we must sharply distinguish between evolution as a biological theorem and popular evolutionism or developmentalism, which is certainly a myth.
before proceeding to describe it, and, which is my chief business, to pronounce its eulogy, I had better make clear its mythical character. We have, first of all, the evidence of chronology. If popular evolutionism were, as it imagines itself to be, not a myth, but the intellectually legitimate result of the scientific theorem on the public mind, it would arise after that theorem had become widely known. We should have the theorem known first of all to a few, then adopted by all the scientists, then spreading to all men of general education, then beginning to affect poetry and the arts, and so finally percolating to the mass of the people. In fact, however, we find something quite different. The clearest and finest poetical expressions of the myth come before The Origin of Species was published, 1859, and long before it had established itself as scientific orthodoxy. There had, to be sure, been hints and germs of the theory in scientific circles before 1859. But if the mythopoeic poets were at all infected by those germs, they must have been very up-to-date indeed, very predisposed to catch the infection. Almost before the scientists spoke, certainly before they spoke clearly, imagination was ripe for it. The finest expression of the myth in English does not come from Bridges, nor from Shaw, nor from Wells, nor from Olaf Stapledon. It is this. As heaven and earth are fairer, fairer far than chaos and blank darkness, though once chief, and as we show beyond that heaven and earth in form and shape compact and beautiful, in will, in action free, companionship, and thousand other signs of purer life. So on our heels a fresh perfection treads, a power more strong in beauty, born of us, and fated to excel us as we pass in glory that old darkness. Thus Oceanus, in Keats Hyperion, nearly forty years before the origin of the species. And on the continent we have the Nibelung's ring, coming, as I do, to bury, but also to praise the receding age, I will by no means join in the modern depreciation of Wagner. He may, for all I know, have been a bad man. He may, though I shall never believe it, have been a bad musician. But as a mythopoeic poet, he is incomparable. The tragedy of the evolutionary myth has never been more nobly expressed than in his Wotan, its heady raptures never more irresistibly than in Siegfried. That he himself knew quite well what he was writing about can be seen from his letter to August Raquel in 1854. Quote, the progress of the whole drama shows the necessity of recognizing and submitting to the change, the diversity, the multiplicity, the eternal novelty of the real. Wotan rises to the tragic height of willing his own downfall. This is all we have to learn from the history of man, to will the necessary and ourselves to bring it to pass. If Shaw's Back to Methuselah were really, as he supposed, the work of a prophet or a pioneer, ushering in the reign of a new myth, its predominantly comic tone and its generally low emotional temperature would be inexplicable. It is admirable fun, but not thus are new epochs brought to birth. 
The ease with which he plays the myth shows that the myth is fully digested and already senile. Shaw is the Lucian, or the Snorri, of this mythology. To find its Aeschylus, or its elder Edda, you must go back to Keats and Wagner. That, then, is the first proof that popular evolution is a myth. In making it, imagination runs ahead of scientific evidence. The prophetic soul of the big world was already pregnant with the myth. If science has not met the imaginative need, science would not have been so popular. But probably every age gets, within certain limits, the science it desires. In the second place, we have internal evidence. Popular evolutionism, or developmentalism, differs in content from the evolution of the real biologists. To the biologist, evolution is a hypothesis. It covers more of the facts than any other hypothesis at present on the market, and is therefore to be accepted unless, or until, some new supposal can be shown to cover still more facts with even fewer assumptions. At least, that is what I think most biologists would say. Professor D.M.S. Watson, it is true, would not go so far. According to him, evolution, quote, is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur, or can be proved by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. Watson, quoted in 19th Century, April 1943, Science and the BBC. This would mean that the sole ground for believing it is not empirical, but metaphysical. The dogma of an amateur metaphysician who finds special creation incredible. But I do not think it has really come to that. Most biologists have a more robust belief in evolution than Professor Watson. But it is certainly a hypothesis. In the myth, however, there is nothing hypothetical about it. It is basic fact. Or, to speak more strictly, such distinctions do not exist on the mythical level at all. There are more important differences to follow. In the science, evolution is a theory about changes. In the myth, it is a fact about improvements. Thus, a real scientist like Professor J.B.S. Haldane is at pains to point out that popular ideas of evolution lay a wholly unjustified emphasis on those changes which have rendered creatures, by human standards, better or more interesting. He adds, quote, We are therefore inclined to regard progress as the rule in evolution. Actually, it is the exception, and for every case of it there are ten of degeneration. But the myth simply expurgates the ten cases of degeneration. In the popular mind, the word evolution conjures up a picture of things moving onwards and upwards and of nothing else whatsoever. And it might have been predicted that it would do so. Already, before science had spoken, the mythical imagination knew the kind of evolution it wanted. It wanted the Ketian and Wagnerian kind, the gods superseding the Titans, and the young, joyous, careless, amorous Siegfried superseding the careworn, anxious, treaty-entangled Wotan. If science offers any instances to satisfy that demand, it will be eagerly accepted. If it offers any instances that frustrate it, 
they will simply be ignored. Again, for the scientist, evolution is a purely biological theorem. It takes over organic life on this planet as a going concern and tries to explain certain changes within that field. It makes no cosmic statements, no metaphysical statements, no eschatological statements. Granted that we now have minds we can trust, granted that organic life came to exist, it tries to explain, say, how a species that once had wings came to lose them. It explains this by the negative effect of environment operating on small variations. It does not in itself explain the origin of organic life, nor of the variations, nor does it discuss the origin and validity of reason. It may well tell you how the brain, through which reason now operates, arose. But that is a different matter. Still less does it even attempt to tell you how the universe as a whole arose, or what it is, or whither it is tending. But the myth knows none of these reticences. Having first turned what was a theory of change into a theory of improvement, it then makes this a cosmic theory. Not merely terrestrial organisms, but everything is moving upwards and onwards. Reason has evolved out of instinct, virtue out of complexes, poetry out of erotic howls and grunts, civilization out of savagery, the organic out of inorganic, the solar system out of some sidereal soup or traffic block, and conversely, reason, virtue, Art and civilization, as we now know them, are only the crude or embryonic beginnings of far better things, perhaps deity itself in the remote future. For in the myth, evolution, as the myth understands it, is the formula of all existence. To exist means to be moving from the status of almost zero to the status of almost infinity. To those brought up on the myth, nothing seems more normal more natural, more plausible, than that chaos should turn into order, death into life, ignorance into knowledge. And with this we reach the full-blown myth. It is one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which have ever been imagined. The drama proper is preceded, do not forget the Rheingold here, by the most austere of all preludes, the infinite void and matter endlessly, aimlessly moving to bring forth it knows not what. Then, by some millionth, millionth chance, what tragic irony. The conditions at one point of space and time bubble up into that tiny fermentation which we call organic life. At first, everything seems to be against the infant hero of our drama, just as everything always was against the seventh son, or ill-used stepdaughter in a fairy tale. But life somehow wins through. With incalculable sufferings, the sorrows of the Volsongs were nothing to it, against all but insuperable obstacles, it spreads, it breeds, it complicates itself. From the amoeba up to the reptile up to the mammal, life, here comes our first climax, wanton as in her prime. This is the age of monsters. Dragons prowl the earth, devour one another, and die. Then the old irresistible theme of the younger son or the ugly duckling is repeated, as the weak, tiny spark of life herself began amidst the beasts that are far larger and stronger than he. 
there comes forth a little, naked, shivering, cowering biped, shuffling, not yet fully erect, promising nothing, the product of another millionth millionth chance. His name in this myth is man. Elsewhere he has been the young Beowulf, whom men at first thought a dastard, or the stripling David armed only with a sling against mail-clad Goliath, or Jack the giant killer himself, or even Hop-o-my-thumb. He thrives. He begins killing his giants. He becomes the caveman with his flints and his club, muttering and growling over his enemy's bones, almost a brute, yet somehow able to invent art, pottery, language, weapons, cookery, and nearly everything else. His name in another story is Robinson Crusoe. Dragging his screaming mate by her hair, I do not exactly know why. Tearing his children to pieces in fierce jealousy until they are old enough to tear him, and cowering before the terrible gods whom he has invented in his own image. But these were only growing pains. In the next act, he has become true man. He learns to master nature. Science arises and dissipates the superstitions of his infancy. More and more he becomes the controller of his own fate, passing hastily over the historical period. In it, the upward and onward movement gets in places a little indistinct, but it is a mere nothing by the timescale we are using. We follow our hero on into the future. See him in the last act, though not the last scene, of this great mystery. A race of demigods now rule the planet, in some versions, the galaxy. Eugenics have made certain that only demigods will now be born. Psychoanalysis, that none of them shall lose or smirch his divinity. Economics, that they shall have to hand all that demigods require. Man has ascended his throne. Man has become God. All is a blaze of glory. And now, mark well the final stroke of mythopoeic genius. It is only the more debased versions of the myth that end here. For to end here is a little pathetic, even a little vulgar. If we stopped at this point, the story would lack the highest grandeur. Therefore, in the best versions, the last scene reverses all. Arthur died. Siegfried died. Roland died at Roncesvaux. Dusk steals darkly over the gods. All this time we have forgotten Mordred, Hagen, Ganelon. All this time nature, the old enemy who only seemed to be defeated, has been gnawing away, silently, unceasingly, out of the reach of human power. The sun will cool. All suns will cool. The whole universe will run down. Life, every form of life, will be banished without hope of return from every cubic inch of infinite space. All ends in nothingness. Universal darkness covers all. True to the shape of Elizabethan tragedy, the hero has swiftly fallen from the glory to which he slowly climbed. We are dismissed in the calm of mind, all passion spent. It is indeed much better than an Elizabethan tragedy, for it has a more complete finality. It brings us to the end not of a story, but of all possible stories. Enden sah ich die Welt. I grew up believing in this myth, and I have felt, I still feel, its almost perfect grandeur. Let no one say we are an unimaginative age. Neither the Greeks, 
nor the Norsemen ever invented a better story. Even to the present day, in certain moods, I could almost find it in my heart to wish that it was not mythical, but true. And yet, how could it be? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>